Great to be with you tonight. So we continue our series through the book of First Peter, which we're calling Sojourners Living as We Long for Home. Living as We Long for Home. And going to be getting into some uh, very practical aspects of this book tonight as we talk about Holiness and submission for the glory of God. Holiness and submission for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, again, we're just so humbled to be here, God. You have blessed us beyond anything we could possibly ask or imagine. Lord, even just again, Lord, the fact that we can gather together free from fear, Lord, tonight even free at this moment from uh, something like uh, the coronavirus, Lord, that is just sweeping over a nation across the world, Lord. That, that could be us. You're sparing us at this time, Lord. We praise you for that. We thank you for your word, Lord Jesus, which is powerful. It's mighty. It saves. It is, as your servant Peter said, it is the it is the seed, the living and abiding word of God through which children of God are reborn into a living hope. And Lord, since we have been reborn into a living hope, since we are your elect exiles, God, your chosen race, your royal priesthood, your holy nation, God, then help us to live, Lord, as you've called us to live, distinct from the world, showing, living forth the aroma of Christ, God, to a world that desperately needs you. Help us be that aroma of life, we pray, to life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to First Peter chapter 2. And I uh, just want to share this excerpt from you that I came across. Because, you know, we're, the second Peter is about suffering. It's about persecution. It's about how to live in a world that is hostile to our faith, which has been true for most of Christian history and is still true today in most parts of the world except for maybe here, and even increasingly so here. But this is an historian's perspective on uh, on one of the reasons, uh, or specifically how suffering was one of, the six, one of the six main reasons that the church grew so rapidly in, the early, in early Christianity. And this is what he says. Because of their dangerous situation vis-a-vis the law, Christians were almost bound to meet in secret. Every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. When persecution did break out, Martyrdom could be attended by the utmost possible publicity. The Roman public was hard and cruel, but it was not altogether without compassion. And there is no doubt that the attitude of the martyrs, and particularly of the young women who suffered along with the men, made a deep impression. In the earlier records, what we find is calm, dignified, and decorous behavior. Cool courage in the face of torment, courtesy towards enemies, and a joyful acceptance of suffering, 
as the way appointed by the Lord to lead to his heavenly kingdom. There are a number of well-authenticated cases of conversion of pagans in the very moment of witnessing the condemnation and death of Christians. There must have been far, uh, there must have been far more who received impressions that in the course of time would be turned into a living faith. One of the church fathers famously said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that is that the more Christians, you know, you, you try to stomp out Christianity by killing Christians, and then, but the more Christians they killed, the more people got saved. Because they saw how Christians stood, stood in the face of death unafraid. In fact, loving their enemies, being courteous to those who were about to kill them. And it impacted people. They saw that Jesus really did make a difference. And so how we live in the world makes a difference. And I think that's what Peter is getting at, is the way we live, and even especially when the world, as the world goes, grows increasingly hostile to our faith, how we live will be a testimony to the truth and power of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about this evening, holiness and submission for the glory of God. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. So if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The word of God, you may be seated. So I want to see... Three, uh, three things we ought to do from this passage, three applications to our lives from this passage. Number one, we're to kill sinful desires for the glory of God. Kill sinful desires for the glory of God. Number two, we are to submit to authority for the glory of God. Submit to authority for the glory of God. Number three, fear God to the glory of God. Fear God to the glory of God. First, number one, we're to kill sinful desires to the glory of God. That's what he says there in verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. So, uh, just to kind of catch us up, last time we talked about how one of Paul's great burdens in this letter is to lay out the glorious riches of what it means to be a child of God, of what it means to be the people of God. And I mean, you just, if you just sit back and just dwell on it and meditate all that we've talked about so far, it's astounding what it means to belong to God. We are elect exiles. We are a chosen race. 
a holy, a royal priesthood to God, a holy nation. We are those who God has called out of darkness to dwell in his marvelous light. We belong to him. He has saved us. He has borne us again from the inside by the living and abiding word of God so that we now desire to please him, to honor him, to love him, to serve him from the heart, to do what we couldn't do before. That is deny ourselves and follow him, love him, trust him. And we talked about how how we live then flows out of who we are. The more we believe and deeply and profoundly understand who we are, who Christ has already made us to be in him, that is what gives us the power then to live out who we already are in the world. I mean, it's just like, I mean, it's like, it's like we talked about before. I mean, just think about it. You're Christ's. You belong to Christ. And so now that changes everything, right? Because it's like everything that I do now, it's like, well, I just can't do anything I want. Why? Because I'm Christ. I'm his and and he's mine. I'm his chosen person. We're his chosen people. And so now we live for him. It changes everything because it's who we are. We now belong to another. And so the more we grasp that, that, the more power that we have to live as who we are. And since we are all these incredible things in Jesus Christ, we can, like Christ, even though, like him, we may be despised and rejected by the world, we can still live distinct from the world as exiles, sojourners, and strangers in a world that's not our home. And so what, how are we supposed to live then as God's chosen race? His royal priesthood, his holy nation. And that, that's our first point. We're to kill sinful desires for the glory of God. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. So, the first thing that I think we can draw from this, just, just looking at verse 11 there, which is just very important for us today, is what we learn is that there, first of all, there's such thing as sinful desires, and note that Peter assumes that Christians will continue to have them. I think both of those points are very important today. There are desires that are sinful. In other words, just because you want something doesn't make it right. Just because you feel something doesn't make it right. Right? Because that's what he says. Abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so, again, now he's talking to Christians, and so... He, he's assuming then that Christians are going to still experience certain types of sinful desires. Okay? And so what that tells us there is that there are some people, I think, who uh, get discouraged or maybe sometimes even question their salvation when they still struggle with sin after they become a Christian because I think they have the misunderstanding uh, that when I become a Christian, well, I'll, I'll, stop, I'll stop wanting to sin altogether. <laughs> well, I wish that was true, but it's not. But there is a key difference, and the key difference is that before you became a Christian, well, you just did whatever you wanted because you just didn't think about it. The difference is now that you're a Christian, you wage war on your sin. Whereas before, it wasn't even a battle. Why? Because you just gave into it. It was what you wanted to do. 
The difference in a Christian then is, well, no, you don't just give in to it now because it's no longer who you are. It's now an alien aspect. It's an alien aspect inside of who you are that you're trying to get rid of. They're trying to kill because it doesn't belong there anymore. And so, and so it doesn't, so when we become a Christian, it doesn't mean that all of our sinful desires will immediately go away. What it means is that now, rather than just giving into them, we fight them by the power of the Holy Spirit. We kill them because if we don't kill them, they'll kill us. You see, that's what it says. Which wage, which wage war against our souls? It's waging war against our souls. The battle against your sin is a war. And would that more Christians believe that because it seems to me that like the average Christian, the way we, the way we go about dealing with our sin, it's not a war. It's like we're just playing around at the park. Your sins will kill you if you don't kill them. So we can't toy around with them. The devil's not kidding around. He's not playing games. He's trying to kill you. And if we toy with a little pet sin over here, if we toy with a little pet sin over here, if we say, yeah, I know I got an anger problem, or yeah, I know I'm unforgiven over here, or yeah, I know I cheated on this over here, and we don't think it's a big deal, let me tell you something. Sin unconfessed and unrepented of, it won't stay small for long. It can't. It won't. If you don't kill it, it'll kill you. So we can have wrong desires, and that's very clear, and that's important today because we live in a world that kind of basically says, you know, you know, just do whatever makes you happy. In fact, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's dangerous. I mean, even 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 our Disney movies just tell our kids, you know, just be yourself. Well, what if yourself is sinful? No, you shouldn't be yourself. You shouldn't follow your heart. Your heart can deceive you. In fact, that's what the Bible says, Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. In other words, you can be 100% convinced that what you're doing or what you're feeling or what you're desiring is right, and it can still kill you because it's not right. It's sin. These desires wage war against our soul. And if you don't kill it, it'll kill you. And if you embrace it and say that it's okay, you might think you're being true to yourself, but really what you're doing is you're being a willing slave to sin because you're not in control of it. It controls you to the point that it has gotten you to believe that you can't even be you without your sin. You see that? It has got, your sin has gotten you to believe that you are your sin. It's one of the great victories of the devil in our generation. We have to kill sin before it kills us. So we have to to do self-examination on a regular basis and ask ourselves questions. Because the Bible is very clear on this. Am I greedy? Am I proud? Am I miserly and not generous? Am I selfish and self-centered? Am I a thief? Am I a liar? Am I a cheat? 
Do I have bitterness or unforgiveness in my life? Am I envious or jealous? Is there something, anything in my life that I know I ought to do and and am not doing it? Is there something that God told me I needed to do that and I haven't done it yet? Is there any kind of sexual immorality in our lives? Lust, pornography, any type of sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Any, any sin will kill you. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. You see that? It's easy to be deceived. Do not be deceived, he says. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, right? Treasuring anything more than God, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Rather, as Christians, we are to, Peter says, live honorable lives. We're to live honorable lives. We're to live pure lives. We're to live humble lives. We're to live lives of integrity and holiness and love and self-control. Self-control and self-denial for the good, for the good of others and for the glory of God. Alive of doing what is right, even when it costs us, and even when it's not to our benefit, doing the right thing. Doing the right thing even in secret, when no one but God would know, but you do it anyways because you fear and trust Him. You keep your word, you honor your commitments, you pay your debts, you treat men and women with respect. Not dishonoring them or through lust or anything else. You control your sinful desires and you put them to death. You nurture good desires in your life. You care for and provide for your family and for others. You are quick to forgive. Slow to speak, slow to anger. You walk in the joy and the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you live like this, people will notice. If you do the right thing when it costs you, people will notice. If you live a life of consistent love and faith and integrity and genuine interest about the eternal condition of others, they'll notice. And if we, and the key is this, is we live this way, we live honorably this way, why? So that when we're spoken against as evildoers, Peter says they may see our good deeds and, give, and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's huge. He's saying that we as Christians should live such beautiful lives of service and self-sacrifice to the world that even, even when the world wants to accuse us of being hateful, bigots, or whatever because we stand on the truth of God's word, Our lives should be so beautiful that even when they say that deep down they know, man, they still do good. 
I disagree with them strongly, but man, they still do good. That's how we're supposed to live. That's how we're supposed to live. Such that even when we are maligned as evildoers, they might see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that mean? Well, it can mean two things. The day of visitation, when God visits his people, that's, a, that's an Old Testament word. And most of the time, it meant God visiting. It can mean two things. It can mean God visiting his people in judgment, or it can mean God visiting his people in salvation. Most of the time, actually, in the Old Testament, it refers to God's visitation and judgment, but the two go together. God saves his people by delivering them and judging their enemies. But what does it mean? What does Peter mean here? Um, The thing is, is it could be either one. So if it's if it's uh, if it's salvation, if God's visiting his people in salvation, then this is what it means. It means that the lost world, when they see our lives, it's just like that, that that what the historian was saying, right? Those Romans, they didn't understand Christianity. They didn't get it. They thought they were unpatriotic because they refused to offer incense to, to Caesar. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. But when they saw the way Christians died, what did they do? They glorified God. The Christians' good works, what did it do? It, drawed the, it drew the unbeliever to the truth about God. And in that way them being drawn by our good deeds and saved, they glorify God on the day of visitation with us. And that's, that's what we pray for. That's what we hope, that our good deeds will testify to the reality of God in such a way that the unbeliever would be drawn to Christ and be saved. The opposite, the, the other alternative is equally true as well, however, and that is that the Bible says this, believer and unbeliever alike, One day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue, believer and unbeliever, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to happen one way or another. Whether in salvation or judgment, all glory will be given to God. But we pray that our lives would so adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ, would be so beautiful, even when we are treated wrongly. (laughs) When they, hear me now, when we return good for evil, people may be drawn to our Savior and be saved. So what do we do? We need to kill sin. We need to confess it. If you have some sin in your life, the Bible says confess your sin. Yes, confess it to God, but don't just confess it to God. The Bible says confess your sin one to another so that you may be healed. Find someone you can trust and tell them, this is my sin. I need help. Will you help me? Get some accountability. Kill it. Confess it. Repent from it. Turn from it. And let us live lives that show a lost world the beauty and glory and wonder of the grace of Jesus Christ. So... So number one, kill sinful desires for the glory of God. Number two, submit to authority for the glory of God. 
Submit to authority for the glory of God. First Peter 2.13, be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme, to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the emperor. So, so Peter's begun by showing the huge importance of, of putting to death uh, sinful desires in our lives. We're to adorn the testimony uh, and our witness of Jesus Christ. And we, do, we live holy lives because we've been saved by a holy Savior. And this is it's so, it's just so important. I mean, people, you know, I understand no matter what we do, people are going to when they disagree with what God says about certain issues and we stand on those issues, people are going to malign Christians. And I mean, that's just, I mean, an unbeliever is going to do what an unbeliever is going to do. But at the same time, the number one thing, the number one thing, when you talk to the average person about why they don't believe in God, vastly, the, the, the reason is not, well, you know, I read some kind of atheistic book or science says this, no. Most of the time, it's something like this. I knew a Christian one time, and this is what they did. Or I saw a person, I saw a person who said he was a Christian. You know what they did? That's the number one reason. It has nothing to do with intellectual arguments, da, da, da. It's personal experience with somebody who professed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why holiness is so, so important. Now, I know sometimes those things aren't always legitimate, but many times they are. And so, we have to do better. We have to live holy lives. We have to love people as best we can. And no, we can't do everything for everybody. But we have to live lives that truly adorn the gospel. And also this. I don't know, I don't presume it's anybody in this room. But maybe someday somebody will listen to this sermon that needs to hear this. If you say you're a Christian but you have no intention of actually living a holy life for God, then please do us a favor and stop calling yourself a Christian. You're making it really hard on the rest of us. And you're going to have to stand before God one day and tell him why you are stumbling block to people getting into heaven. Just do everybody a favor and stop. Or even better yet, repent. Believe in Jesus, turn from your sin, and you'll be saved. But this transition here, I think, is important because he's talking about holiness, and I believe then he, he transitions into this, this whole section on authority, which we'll be in for a few weeks. Because I believe Peter sees that the way Christians submit to proper authority is part of the honorable life. That is one of the ways that we live honorable lives before the lost world is that we as Christians submit to proper authority. Okay? Now, this is important because we live in a very anti authoritarian society. You know, people don't like authority, people don't like to exercise authority, certainly, people don't like to submit to authority. And we can't succumb to the lie of the world, the flesh, and the devil that just because authority can be abused, that therefore 
there cannot be any good authority. We have to believe and trust God. We know that there is good authority because God is the authority. And that's why, for example, I think the first, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments that doesn't relate directly to God is honor your father and mother. Why? Why would God do that? I think it's very simple. Because the family is the fundamental unit of society and the way a human being, every human being, the way that God designed that a human being is supposed to learn the fundamental basics about submitting to good authority is learning to fear and respect their parents. And the way that parents do that, I mean, we're not ultimately in control of our child's salvation. I understand that. But I believe that by and large, the way that our parents do that can, can largely affect then the way our children come to love and fear God. If they can't respect and fear you, how are they going to respect and fear God? Right? There's good authority, and everyone must learn to submit to proper authority, the the foremost authority being the authority of God. And so Peter sees here that as we live our lives in genuine submission to proper authority, that will is one of the aspects of the life that adorns the gospel, that is honorable in the world to honor God. And it will show the beauty and the wisdom of the Christian life. And the first proper authority that he addresses here is that of government. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake. See that? Well, I'm not going to submit to that government. The Lord's sake. Not your sake. Not the government's sake. The Lord's sake. You don't respect the government? Fine. Respect God. Respect God. Be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution. It translates to institution. The Greek word there is actually creature. Be subject to every human creature. But then he goes on to give examples of what he means by that because he talks about the king, which almost certainly refers to the Roman emperor. And then he talks about governors, which which was a title that encompassed various, it would have encompassed various officials within the Roman government. And so what he means by that is that he's, he's saying that one of the first things that we're supposed to submit properly to is those who fulfill legitimate governmental roles. And so, put simply here, Christians are to be good and faithful citizens. We are to respect proper governmental authority, whether we voted for them or not. We live in a day where political tensions are especially high. I'm about 99% sure that social media has a lot to do with that. It has become a breeding place for animosity, spiteful, biting language, angry words, put-downs, name-callings. Let me read this verse to you. I want you to think about this. Matthew 12. I tell you on the day of judgment... 
people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There's going to be a lot of accounting to do for what people posted on their social media accounts. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. We will give an account for every word we speak, everything we write, everything we post. If your comment doesn't exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and adorn your testimony and put forth the beauty of our Savior, then don't put it down. Because then someone's going to come to me and say, hey, did you see what so-and-so put on their Facebook page? Don't they go to your church? This may shock some, but it won't be long from now and America won't matter. Read a history book. The Roman Empire was one of the greatest empires in human history. Where is it? It doesn't exist. It's gone. It lasted for hundreds of years. We're young as a nation. But guess what? Read a history book. We, think, we really think we're so special because we live in modern America. But let me tell you something. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. You want to do something, you want to do something with our short little lives that's actually going to last forever? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not your political party's aspirations. And all these things will be added unto you. A few more verses. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those you hear. Do the things we say impart grace to people? It's not, it's not, the, look, the litmus test of what we say and post is not, is it true? It's, does it give grace? It doesn't mean there's no time and place to say hard, true things. But are we imparting grace to people? James 3, 9 and 10, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse People who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. So what do we do? We give honor to whom honor is due. This is supernatural. It takes the Holy Spirit to honor people whom you intensely disagree with. And it is precisely that 
that will show that we belong to Christ and not to the world. If you lose your witness to score a political point, you've lost. You haven't gained anything. You've lost. And you know, there's a big accusation in the world. And I know that they're going to say this regardless. But there's a big accusation that, well, you know, them Christians, they're just, you know, they're, you know, they're showing their real, their real colors now because it was really about politics all along with them. I pray that's not true. But we have to show them. We have to show them by what? By the words we say and the words we speak showing what? Showing that even though we do care about our country, even though we do care about policies and that policies are important, even though we do care about important things, the kingdom of Christ is supreme to us. And unless that is manifest and evident in the way that we carry ourselves in our speech, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. We honor the government because government is God-ordained, as Paul said in Romans 13. It is a fallible, fallen institution, yes. But nevertheless, even a sinful government, generally speaking, punishes evil, rewards good, and maintains peace and order. You might, we might not like everything going on in the government right now. Let me tell you something. Lots of people complain about the government of the United States, and I'm not saying there's stuff to complain about, but there's a reason people aren't moving to Syria or Venezuela. People can say all they want when you have the freedom to say it, but go live in a place with no government. You'll thank God for America. Even an evil government generally speaking, punishes evil, rewards good, and maintains peace and order. And even if you say, well, man, our government's corrupt. Well, Paul is writing to these Christians about the Roman government in the mid-60s A.D. Go look it up. It was bad. It was bad. And Peter tells them, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. And that's what he says here. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Right? We should live lives of such pure integrity and holiness and gentleness and love and service and self-sacrifice that, uh, that we, would put, <laughs> we would silence the ignorance of foolish people. Because our actions would speak for themselves. For 2,000 years, Christians have learned how to live godly, holy lives in the face of hostile governments. And we have to, too. Finally, and we'll be done, the last point here. So kill sinful desires for the glory of God, submit to authority for the glory of God, and finally, fear God for the glory of God. And that last verse there, it says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I just want to focus there briefly on, on fear God. We've kind of talked about the others a little bit. But notice the only one listed there to fear is God. We honor people because people are made in God's image. 
So we honor people because we fear God. But the only one we fear is God. You see, for 2,000 years of Christian history, at various times and various places, even up to this very day, Christians have had to choose, have been forced to choose. God or my family. God or my job. God or my place in society. God or my life. We might not have been forced to make those choices yet, but who knows? We may have to choose one day what you're going to choose. Isaiah 2.22, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Matthew 10.26, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There are some things to be afraid of. If you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else. If you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else. The Bible says he's a refuge to those who fear him, who serve him, who love him. If you fear him, you don't have to fear anything else, but beware of fearing other things and not fearing God. That's the great danger. So kill sinful desires for the glory of God, submit to authority for the glory of God, and fear God to the glory of God. We are elect exiles. We are sojourners. We're strangers and aliens living as we long for home. Let's adorn the gospel of our Savior. Let's, let's, let's show the world that, Christ, that Jesus Christ is more beautiful than anything in this world. And as we do, and listen, as the world gets, as the world gets darker and darker, holy lives lived in the faith and love of Jesus Christ, they'll only shine brighter and brighter. And people will see And let's pray that people will be drawn to our Savior through it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight.